We're finishing up our, our series in uh, Genesis, the first three chapters in the beginning today, uh, the last few verses of, of chapter three. Um, early in the, the story of Les Miserables, Les Miserables I, I took French, but it didn't stick, um, right? Uh, whether you've read uh, the book or you've seen the, the musical or the, the film, and when I mean the film, I'm not talking about the uh, Hugh Jackman musical film, I'm talking about the Liam Neeson film from several years ago. I'm, I'm a fan of that one in particular. But anyway, uh, but, but there's a scene kind of t- near the beginning, right? Uh, the, the protagonist, Jean Valjean, right? Who has just finished s- serving a 19-year prison sentence for stealing a loaf of bread, right? And, and he's released from prison and, and he encounters this bishop who invites him in, who, who gives him uh, some good food, who, who gives him uh, a warm bed to sleep in and offers to just kind of let him come in and get warm. And, and, and at night, though, Jean Valjean, feeling the weight of just the hopelessness that uh, living as a convict in uh, that society in the, kind of the period of the French Revolution uh, would, would be for him, uh, he's, he's basically a dead man, a walking dead man. There's, there's no hope that he's getting like a good job and going to have, have like a meaningful life. And, and he's just overwhelmed by that. He ends up stealing, deciding to steal the bishop's silver and just packs it all up in his little sack and, and then makes a run for it. But the very next day, he's apprehended by the authorities uh, who, who catch him. But he tells them that, that the bishop gave him the silver, right? The bishop gave, that was a gift. Of course, they assume that he's lying. They bring him back to the bishop uh, to just kind of confront him in the lie, get, return the silver, uh, and then carry him on back to jail because they, they know that, that he's lying. But the most remarkable thing happens when he encounters the bishop. The bishop says, that's true. I did, I did give him that silver. Right? And then he even goes so far as to start scolding Jean Valjean. Why did you leave the candlesticks? Right? They're, they're the most valuable pieces. Why would you leave those? I gave those to you too. And he comes and he gives him these silver candlesticks. The, the most valuable pieces of silver that he has. That he left behind and puts them in his sack. And, and you know, it tells the the, uh, the authorities to release him, uh, to, and they, they retreat, kind of go on their, their way. And, and the bishop draws in close, right? Draws near to Jean Valjean, and he says these words. He says, don't forget, never forget that you have promised to use this money to become an honest man. And, and Jean Valjean, the whole time, he just has this look like, why would this man do this? And I don't remember making a promise uh, of, of like that, right? I, 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 he's just kind of speechless, And the bishop says to him, at least this is in the book, he says to him, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. I give it to God. To me, that that scene in the the musical, the book, the film, whatever uh, version you you see or or encounter of that, is just one of the most profound illustrations of of mercy and grace. Jean Valjean is caught in his sin. I mean, he is guilty. He's caught. And he's full of fear and shame. The fear of being taken back to prison. The shame of of what he did to this this kind-hearted man who was loving and gracious enough to even invite him into his home in the first place. And this bishop then steps in and just covers him. 
He just, he just covers him. He clothes him. He, 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 he covers his shame. He removes his guilt. He relieves his fears. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful scene. Uh, we see something similar to that at, at the end uh, of Genesis 3. In, in the midst of God's just judgment of Adam and Eve for their sin, we also get a glimpse of his mercy and grace. Uh, Genesis 3, verses 20 through 24. If you turn there in your Bibles, I invite you to stand together for the reading of God's word. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to to gather together, to to be encouraged by your word, to, to, to listen to your voice. And we pray that you would speak to us, that you would remind us today. Uh, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of the, the guilt and the fear and the shame that we feel for our sin, and it, when we encounter your presence in particular, Lord, that you have an even more abundant provision of your grace and your mercy to cover us, to remove the stain, uh, to set us free in you. And I pray through everything that, we take, that takes place here today, we would see that, we would cling to that, and we would walk in light of that. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In these these final verses, and really throughout chapter 3, we kind of see humanity's sinful condition. Uh, We see God's just judgment for sin. uh, But we also see His gracious provision. All right, we, we see humanity's sinful condition in the fall. You know, if you were here with us last week, many of you uh, were here last week. Uh, we, we see Adam and Eve kind of exchanging the truth about God for a lie, right? The serpent, Satan himself, comes. He mocks God. He mocks God's word. Like, would, did he actually say that? Did you, do you actually believe that he would say that? And he questions the goodness of God. He challenges the goodness of God. He's trying to destroy their trust in God. And and he tempts them with this enticement that they can become like God if they will just simply disobey and reach out and take and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's exactly what they do, right? They put themselves in the place of God. They put themselves in the place of God. They exchange the truth about God for a lie, as it says in Romans chapter 1. They, they give up trusting in the goodness of God who created them, who blessed them, who put them in this lavish garden of abundance. They give up trusting Him as God, and instead they, they, they trust the lies of Satan. And they reject God and, and reach out, seeking to make themselves their own God. To, to, to rule in their, in, in their own, on their own throne in their own life. And they eat of the tree. And we saw that this is kind of the nature of sin, right? It's more than simple disobedience. It's the exchange of that truth for the lie. It's putting yourself in the place of God. It's not just simply the, the behavioral like, disobedience. It's what those behaviors are communicating, what, what's underneath them. 
underneath the commandment to not eat from this tree, right? It seems like, like they didn't kill anyone. They didn't, you know, they, they didn't commit adultery. They didn't steal anything. It's just this commandment not to eat of the tree. But underneath that is this, you, will you trust me, right? I've made you. I've blessed you. I'm your God. You're my people. Will you trust me as your God? That's what they violate. That's, that's the nature of the sin. Um, and they're saying, I, I don't trust you, God. Right? I don't think that you're good. I think you're withholding good from me. So I'm going to take and I'm going to eat. And I'm going to put myself in your place. And, and worship myself. Right? That's, that's the sinful condition that, that we're all in. As a result of Adam's sin. Right? When he did that, we did that with him. He was our representative before God in that. And Adam exchanged in that moment, we said last week, the, the fellowship with the triune God of the Bible for fellowship with an evil trinity of, of fear, shame, and guilt. Right? In shame, immediately, Adam and Eve react in shame to their sin. They realize they're naked. And they seek to cover their shame by plucking some fig leaves off the tree and, and trying to fashion a little garment for themselves. It's just like a really shabby like loincloth to cover themselves. In fear, when they hear God walking in the garden, they run and they hide in their fear. They try to manage it that way. And in their guilt, what happens is God comes and he asks the questions of Adam. And he asks the questions of Eve. What do they do? Wasn't me, right? Not my fault, right? It's the woman that you made and you gave to me, God. Like, really, this is your fault, right? If you wouldn't have made her and brought her to me, then I would have never done this. So let's talk about who's really responsible. That's shifting the blame, right? Trying to avoid and deal with our guilt in that way. This Eve does the same thing. It was the serpent, right? The serpent deceived me. It's the serpent's fault. And just blame shifting all over the place. And they don't possess in themselves the ability to, to handle, to deal with, to manage their fear and their shame and their guilt. And there's nowhere that they can ever hide, right, from the, the one true God of the Bible who's omniscient and omnipresent and, and, and know, he knows all he's everywhere, right? He, he sees everything. And, and no amount of blame shifting and self-justification can do away with the guilt that they have for their sin. And there's no way fig leaves can cover their shame. It's just impossible. And so here is our human condition, right? Dead in our trespasses and sins and unable to to do anything about it. Spiritually, we are the walking dead, right? I'm a fan of the show. Don't judge me. But but, but that's that's our spiritual condition. We're, We're the walking dead. And dead people don't make themselves alive again. So we're without hope in that. We're without hope in that. This is the curse of sin that we are all born into. Right? Apart from a work of, of God, we're dead in our sins. And Genesis 3 helps us understand why. Right? In Adam, we, we rejected our good and generous God and sought to put ourselves in his place. And, and we, seek, we continue to seek after uh, divinity, like things that don't belong to us. We continue to seek to, to live and rule as our own God. That's what God's getting at and what he says in verse 22 here at the end. It says, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Right? It's clear from the larger context of, of chapter 3 that, that man was not successful in becoming like God. 
right? The, 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 the result of verse 19 makes that clear. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Right? We celebrated that on Ash Wednesday, early this, uh, this, this past Wednesday morning here in, in a small gathering. Right? You are dust, and to dust you shall return. How's that for being divine? For being like God? You're not like God. Only God is like God. You're dust. But what God is saying here in verse 22 is not that we were successful in that pursuit of becoming like God, but only that now, like God in a sense, we know good and evil. But unlike God, our knowledge of good and evil is evil. Like it's twisted. It's distorted. It's, it's not like his knowledge of good and evil. And, and our understanding, in, in that understanding, our prideful desire is still there to continue to want to try to become like God, to reach out and grab for what is not ours and what we should not have. That's what's meant when he says, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat. The desire to reach out for what we cannot have and must not have, our natural bent, is just this insatiable desire to to put self on the throne, to, to worship self in the place of God. This is our condition And there's nothing, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do to remedy that. Nothing. We're dead in our sins. And in Genesis 3, our our sinful condition, the, the sin of our first parents is rightfully met with God's just judgment. The just penalty for sin is death. Death, physical death is the result of sin. Right? Your dust, to dust you shall return. But even more significant is the spiritual death. The separation from God and His life-giving presence and glory. We, we saw God's response last week to the serpent and to the woman and to the man. The, the curse of pain and conflict and toilsome work. Uh, the marred creation as a res- result of our sin. The promise that we will return to the dirt from where we were made. We'll die. But we see a deeper penalty for sin in these verses, verses 22 through 24, right? Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The sentence that God says, the the quote from God in verse 22, like ends abruptly. There's no completion of that sentence. And and, and part of that purpose is to just communicate to us just the quickness of God's action in judgment here. Like he hasn't barely even finished speaking before he's sending them out. Right? Out. You cannot be here anymore because of your sin. You cannot remain in this place of divine presence and glory any longer because of your sin, right? He sends them out. And why? Why why the haste to do so? Well, to keep the man and the woman separated from the tree of life so that they may not continue to live in this spiritually dead and evil state on and on and on in perpetuity, right? To to make it clear that, that God wasn't simply suggesting that I think it would be a good idea for you to leave. Verse 24 makes it clear, God drove them out, right? This is, you're out now to the curb, right? With love, but you can't be here 
you can't be here. And, may, and he makes it so they can never return and never again have access to the tree of life. And again, as we've seen, as we've seen earlier in Genesis, uh, this reference to the east of the garden is, is another one of those things that if you know the Old Testament a little bit, right, as you look at the, the tabernacle and the temple to follow later in, in, in the Old Testament, uh, they're entered from the east as well. And this is yet just another echo that we see throughout, that we've seen throughout these first three chapters of the garden is, is in many ways a, another sanctuary of God. Right, this place of divine presence and, and glory where God is uniquely present with, with his people there, with Adam and Eve there before the fall. And, and this is what Adam and Eve were cut off from. Right? They weren't just separated and, and, and we're going to die now, but they're separated from the life-giving presence and glory of God. That intimacy that they had known, the perfection that they had lived in there, in that, that beautiful, perfect sanctuary. Right? Sin results in us being under the just judgment of God. He, he's holy. He's separate from sin. He's completely righteous and just. And so our sin must be dealt with. And the just penalty for sin is death. Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death. Yet the physical death that now reigns since, since the fall uh, and since our access to the tree of life is, is prohibited now. But even more, the spiritual death. Even more the spiritual death. The fact that we've been cut off from his life-giving presence. That's his just judgment for our sin. But in these verses, we also see God's gracious provision. Right? Because of their sin, in, in God's presence, Adam and Eve are met with fear, shame, and guilt. And even though their attempts to deal with and manage those things are, are inadequate, God addresses them as only God can. Right? Remember, after the fall, God comes asking questions. Right? He doesn't come making condemnation statements. He comes asking questions. But why is he asking questions? Well, he, he knows what happened. He knows what they've done. He's, he's pursuing them. He's seeking to lead them into this opportunity to, to confess, to repent, to acknowledge their sin, and to turn from it. We talked about that a little bit last week. He, he's good. right? He's the one that we should trust. He, he comes in love. Pursuing like a good father, because that's who he is. And to address their fear, God gave them the hope. Uh, speaking as he addresses the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These are words of hope. He's addressing the serpent, but these are words of hope to Adam and Eve. Right? That this is not the final word. That one is coming who will undo all of this. One is coming who will crush the serpent's head, who will defeat Satan, sin, and death once and for all. These are words of promise, words of hope. This is the first proclamation of the gospel in the scriptures, Genesis 3.15, right here at the fall. And it's a word that addresses their fear, right? It invites them in instead of, to, you know, to instead put their hope once again in God. To put their trust once again in God. To turn from that and, and put their hope in Him. Adam, God's pursuit of Adam and Eve following their sin is, is really an invitation there to confession, to repentance, to faith. To trust God anew. The first glance, verse 20, seems like really out of place, right? You look at verse 20. 
in the midst of the fall, and then kind of what comes after it, it just like, out of the blue, the man called his wife's name Eve, <laughs> because she was the mother of all living. Like, what does that have to do with anything here? It seems really out of place, but a closer look gives us a hint, and maybe, maybe an idea that's included here, right? The, the name Eve means life. It, it means life giver, right? Life, or life giver, uh, that's an interesting name in the circumstances that, 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 God, that Adam would give to his wife. Right? But remember, it will be the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. It will be the offspring of the woman who will bring life to all once more and make that way possible. Could, could this be possibly a testimony of Adam's faith in the words of Genesis 3.15 in God's promise to him? It's, it's not explicit. Uh, this could be a little bit of speculation. So, you know, I'm standing over here. I'm not holding the Bible, right? Uh, uh, but in the face of the promise of certain death due to, for their sin and banishment from the garden being cut off in the tree, it's interesting that this is the name that Adam gives his wife. There could be a little bit more support in what follows. Look at verse 21. Right? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothe them. God addresses them with the gospel, with the promise in Genesis 3.15. And here he addresses their fear in that. And here we see him addressing their shame and their guilt. Right? They tried to pluck some leaves from a fig tree and, and just kind of cover their, their, their private parts, right? Very, you know, inadequately. But God comes and he, he makes adequate clothing for them. Garments of skin. Not like a loincloth, but, but a tunic, right? So covering torso down to the knees. Like adequate covering. He brings garments of skin and he addresses their shame. He gives them an adequate covering to cover the shame that they feel. That's God's answer. Their feeble attempts to cover themselves were just that. But God is able to cover them and take their shame for them. Well, what about their guilt? What about their guilt? How is that addressed? Well, where did the garments come from? What did, where did God make these clothes? Like, how did he make these clothes? They're garments of skins. Animal skins. So in other words, God killed an animal to make clothes for Adam and Eve. Right? This isn't explicit either. Like, this isn't necessarily like it, it doesn't say like this was a sacrifice that God made on behalf of of Adam and Eve, but, but it's definitely an echo that we see later in the Old Testament sacrifices and, and in the Passover lamb and, and the, the day of atonement, right? That, that it takes a substitutionary uh, uh, you know, atonement, right? Someone, a substitute must be sacrificed. There must be a substitute who will die and shed blood in our place to cover our sin. God's way is sacrifice. That's throughout the scripture, you know? Some of you, I know, are, are fans of, of Michael Gunger, uh, who this week on Twitter just like totally went crazy with this idea that the, the language of, of shedding blood and penal substitutionary atonement has no place in our culture anymore, that it's just not an adequate metaphor. Well, it's not a metaphor. It's what's required for our sin. God requires that there be a sacrifice to atone for our sins, to, to pay for our sins. He requires that blood be shed in our place for our sin. That, that's his way. There is no cheap grace. Right? We want cheap grace. We want it to be easy. We want it to not cost us anything. We want to be able to just have Jesus and keep living however we want to live. But that's not the way it works, right? 
It requires a sacrifice. It requires repentance and faith. Turning from our sin and trusting Christ. That's God's way. There's no cheap grace. All of that, right? This this animal that's killed to make these clothes that, that kind of points a way forward and kind of echoes what we see in the Passover lamb that was shed so that as the angel of death came over the, to take the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, he would pass over the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, living in slavery in Egypt in that time. And the Day of Atonement, when the high priest, the one day of the year, would take the perfect goat without blemish and, and, and sacrifice it and then sprinkle its blood over the mercy seat in the most holy place of the temple to atone for the sins of the people. It's, it's all pointing towards that. And all of those things are but a shadow of Jesus who comes as the Lamb of God to take away our sins, who comes as the perfect once and for all sacrifice whose blood is shed on your behalf to atone for your sins, to take your shame, to cover your guilt, right? To, to take it from you and, and turn it to favor, to turn it to grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Very simply says, For our sake he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie in the garden and worshipped created things, worshipped ourselves. But Jesus makes his own exchange on the cross. And he, he lays aside his perfection. He takes on himself all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our sin. He suffers and dies as our, our guilt and shame. And in return, he offers those who would turn from their sins and trust in him, he offers them his perfection. To be clothed in his perfection. For you if, you, if you will but confess your sins to God. And turn, acknowledge them, and, and repent, right? Turn from them. Turn from, I'm going this way in my life, living this way, to I'm, I'm going, I'm running to Jesus. I'm going to cling to him. If you will but do that, he can make it so that the words of Isaiah 61.10 are your words. And this is what they say. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is God's gracious provision for you. For you. This is the beauty of Christ. This is the beauty of Christ. In in your sin, you sought to rob him. You sought to take what wasn't yours. You thought that you would do a better job as your own God. And you, you try to make a run for it, but you can't get away, right? You're apprehended in your sin with fear and shame and guilt. And yet here's Jesus who goes to the cross for you and says, you forgot the candlesticks, right? You forgot the candlesticks. He, he, he gives you grace. He gives you mercy that you can have a new life in him, with him, for him. There's no way to escape his presence, right? He, he, he's got what you need in him. We're going we're gonna to hear some testimonies in just a, a moment here and, and celebrate some baptisms. And, and, and the temptation is, is to, to think, well, that's good for them, but maybe not. I don't know if that's possible for me. And friends, your sin is great. Like, that's what Genesis 3 says. Like, your sin is serious. Your sin requires judgment. 
Your sin requires that blood be shed. It requires death. There's an enormity of need expressed here. But what it also tells us, what the gospel tells us, is that God's gracious provision is even greater in Christ. And so no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been, He's able to make your story His story. Right? He's able to enter into that with you, to rescue you and redeem you, if you will but confess and repent and put your hope in Jesus. And that's my pray, prayer for today, that you would, you would hide yourself in Him. Right? There's nowhere else you're going to be able to hide. So hide in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for this time to, to gather, to worship together, um, to celebrate what You're doing in the lives of, of, of a couple of our brothers today. Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of grace. We recognize that, that our sin is serious, that our, our need is enormous, but that your provision is even greater. Would you help us to just gaze at your cross today as we witness these baptisms, as we share in the Lord's Supper later, as we continue to worship and, and, and close our time together? Would you help us to see the, the, the even greater amount of grace and mercy that you have for us. That you are the only place that we can hide where our fears can be relieved. That you are the only, you provide the only covering that will will cover our shame. And that only Jesus, only you can remove our guilt. Only you can set us free to, to real freedom in you. Would you help those of us who are Christians in this room to continue to live more in light of this? That we'd be more honest with one another. That we would be more open with our struggles. That we would be more willing to come alongside and remind each other of the hope and the truth uh, of the grace that we have in you, Lord Jesus. And would you use us as ambassadors of that in this city? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.